Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dominique Harrison, Director of the Technology Policy Program at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, which is a public policy think tank in Washington, D.C. Dr. Harrison recently published research with the Joint Center about the digital divide in the Black rural South, showing that 38% of Black residents lack internet service at home compared to 23% of white residents. We dive deeper into that research and the causes of the digital divide for Black communities in particular in the rural South, what policies are needed to respond to these disparities, and to what extent the broadband legislation awaiting passage in Washington, D.C. meets those urgent policy needs. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. So um, I wanted to talk to you about the research you recently did at the Joint Center's uh, Technology Policy Program, where you're the director. Um, You focused your research uh, on the Black Rural South specifically, the digital divide there. So I wanted to know, first off, why did you focus on that region of the country in particular? Well, just a little history in terms of that like region of the country. Um, the actual term, it used, some folks call or define it as the Black Belt, right? And that was explained by Booker T. Washington as a region that was rich with dark soil and that enslaved people were taken to because it was most prof- profitable for agriculture. So the term over the years has come to describe the large number of African Americans in the area. And over the years, research has defined the Black Belt using various kind of definitions and formulations with populations um, that have 40% African-American individuals. So our report overlaps because we use the Black Belt as like the basis of the definition. However, we exclude metropolitan counties in the region and we focus specifically on rural counties. And because we are interested in understanding the kind of distinct characteristics um, of what is going on in that space, we wanted to focus on areas that had 35% or higher African-Americans. And that is how we define the Black rural South. And so we wanted to focus on Black communities in rural America across 10 states that includes Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia and includes 152 counties in those states. Okay, got it. So let's talk a little bit more about um, what you actually found in your research, some of the most important findings from this report, and how the circumstances causing the digital divide in the Black rural South differ from what other communities are experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the pandemic put a spotlight on digital equity, but our national conversation rarely grappled with the deep inequity facing the Black rural South and the way that it amplifies the impact of structural racism. Our research shows that 38% of African-American residents in the Black rural South lack home internet access, and that's literally double the rate of white residents in the same region. One in four four Black residents in the rural South, that's 25.8%, lack even the option to subscribe to high-speed broadband, compared with 3.8% of Americans overall. And 36% of Black students in the rural South lack high-speed broadband, more than double the national average of 15.8%. I mean, and let's be clear, you know, 
issues as it relates to the digital divide for African-Americans is an issue in both metropolitan and rural areas. But many times when we discuss the digital divide as it relates to rural communities, rural is conflated with white. And so we really wanted to focus on black residents in those communities. And because of the distinctive nature in terms of the history of that region as it relates to black residents, we wanted to highlight some of these challenges that uh, communities are facing. I mean, when you think about the history of enslavement in that region, sharecropping um, and Jim Crow, that all connects to some of the issues as it relates to uh, job creation, job loss, uh, education, um, and the kind of low-performing schools, and also issues as it relates to um, companies leaving that region for other areas across the United States, and hospitals even closing down. So you couple that all in the context of the larger scheme of looking at the digital divide as it relates to rural Black Americans, and there is something specific going on here, and we need to be intentional and specific about the solutions that we create in order to close this um, divide for Black Americans there. Yeah. So to that point, your report does make a series of policy recommendations. So can you talk me through some of them and, and how they would make a difference? Yeah. So I'm really excited about some of the things that we suggested because they are written within the infrastructure plan um, right mm -hmm. now. Um, one of the kind of recommendations is that there be a low cost option uh, for uh, communities um, that is provided by internet service provider. So um, the infrastructure bill directs the FCC to propose reforms to its universal so service program, but the success of that directive depends on whether regulators require broadband providers to offer affordable option to low-income households. And as we've uh, written about in the report, availability and affordability is uh an issue that um, impacts that specific community because services aren't affordable and a number of black residents live in poverty in that region. So it's important that there be low cost options. Uh, we also talk about how the FCC should make rules prohibiting the practice of digital redlining. So that is uh, the ability for ISPs to select which communities they wanna provide faster quality services to and all communities should be served regardless of um, income or zip code, race or ethnicity. Um, and so that's very important. And I'm hoping that as states receive this funding and create new agreements with ISPs, um, that they incorporate language that will prohibit this kind of practice. Um, and also state lawmakers must repeal legislation on the books in some states that prevents communities from offering their own public broadband. Um, you know, many folks will argue that competition is an issue and other research states that it has a very small correlation to folks' ability to access broadband. But in general, I think that giving communities options, right, to have uh, and to choose, select what services they want um, can provide more opportunities to be connected and for now, there are a number of uh, states within the Black Rural South that don't allow communities who have municipal broadband or cooperation to be able to get that kind of service. And so that's important. Um, so I would lastly say that certainly we need a, a permanent broadband benefit subsidy program that gives more than the $9.95 uh, amount. We're happy about the EBB, $50 a month, but Currently in the infrastructure bill, it says $30. 
Um, but we need more, right? It's just not enough with families trying to decide if they're going to pay their utility bills or private, you know, buy food. Um, they shouldn't have to make the decision either or for being connected to the internet or getting, you know, the kind of services or, or resources they need to live. Um, so it's important that there is a specific higher amount that allows customers to choose what service they want. But also, I'm really interested in, you know, folks having the ability to have a voucher to collect, to select or choose a device, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know having the internet on your phone is not enough to do work and it's not enough to do school yeah. or to play. So folks need a computer or a tablet in order to be connected to true quality service of the internet. So to stick with the infrastructure bill for the moment, which as we speak is is still, you know, in in Congress and not yet moving through the House because the House is also debating or trying to get a couple of senators on board with the budget reconciliation bill, also known as the Jobs and Families Plan, also known as Build Back Better. So many wonderful names. Uh, perhaps we could have chosen one, but whatever, right. we'll deal we'll deal with that when we have a rewriting of history some other time. But right. um, to stick with what's in the infrastructure bill, you mentioned that it does uh, line up with some of your policy suggestions. Um, and But I would also point out that there are some of those that uh, were pushed back against by lobbyists. And, uh, you know, to your point about it, there's a lot of pushback against municipal broadband from people who quote unquote, promote quote unquote competition. Um, uh, so yeah, the language around digital redlining got softened to digital discrimination, and it's a bit vague. Um, and some of these really important things like the EBB or the, per the version of the EBB that will become the permanent subsidy are left up to the FCC, which, as you probably know, is in a bit of a holding pattern because it doesn't have permanent staff. Um, and then uh, regarding the jobs and families plan, which is what we'll call it, uh, there's a lot in there, I think, that would um, respond to some of the issues that create uh, the circumstances that cause the digital divide in these communities that you were studying and in other communities. Um, so is is that's a long way around of asking, is there more that you would like to see from uh, the final infrastructure package and the, the final Build Back Better bills that, that get passed and sent to President Biden's desk? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act can provide a framework to make progress, but only if we put equity at the center of the legislation's implementation. So although there are some incentives for states to disperse the $42.5 billion in broadband deployment funds to low-income communities, it's important that states exercise their considerable leeway to target broadband expansion where needed most which mm -hmm. we uh, think is the Black Rural South. And those are communities who have no infrastructure, right, Abel? Those are the unserved. We certainly think that there also needs to be priority for those who are underserved, that are folks that don't even have uh, speeds that qualify for broadband. That's 25 over three megabytes per second. But also, in addition to focusing on low-income communities and communities of color more generally, we think that states should prioritize projects developed by anchor institutions like historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. And we talk about that in the report and just how important they are for their surrounding communities, which many times may include African-American um, communities. And HBCUs have a lot of capacity and um, information and resources that they can lend to states and also uh, individuals in terms of trying to 
great practices and programs as it relates to closing the digital divide. They can also advocate for policies at the state and federal level and be much like a brain trust for those communities. So I think it's important that states look to those types of institutions as it thinks through some of the solutions for trying to close the digital divide and use this money wisely and in a way that's equitable and inclusive. I think that's a great point. And are there any states that you know of that are doing this yet or or can serve as a model? Well, I certainly think that North Carolina in many ways have been uh, has been promoted and applauded for a lot of the work that they've done as it relates to um, equity, inclusion and digital divide. I mean, they have someone, a dedicated office, uh, a leader who is focused on these issues, puts equity at the center of broadband, collects research, works with a number of stakeholders. And I think they provide um, a lot of great examples on the practices and programs that folks can um, replicate within their communities. You know, as it stands, if I'm not mistaken, I've heard that there are uh, many states that don't even have CIOs or don't have offices dedicated to these, you know, broadband issues. And we're gonna need that. States are gonna need that. There's a lot more money coming that way. You need dedicated staff to begin to understand the challenges in the local community, which is another reason why we provide this research and data and information is so important. And you're going to need people who are um, knowledgeable about these uh, issues that can start to create best practices, as as I've stated, and things that will truly address these challenges. And so um, I'm hoping that that will be a part of state's plans is like, let's create a team that can specifically focus on that. Um, But I would say that North Carolina is a great example. And also Baltimore as a city has done some really great things in terms of broadband access. Um, and trying to increase that for their community members. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to to chat with me about your research. And thank you for doing the research and shedding light on on this important uh, disparity in the Black rural South. It's it's important to to highlight uh, the issues that go into the digital divide. uh, And then the issues that come out of the digital divide, they they tend to be the same ones there economic and, and health and education, and, and they all feed into each other in a cyclical pattern. And I think your report really shows that. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being on here. And I'm so happy that we can share our findings. And, and I hope that this work really makes an impact in the lives of Black Americans across the U.S. Thank you again so much, Dr. Harrison, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Tien Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.